This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. It's my great pleasure to introduce an old, old friend, Edward Dimmenberg. Edward and I met in on a bus in Berlin, as I recall, somewhere in Berlin, back in 81 or 82, eons ago. Uh, we were both Fulbrighters then, and um, it's been a sort of fitful, not fitful, but intermittent relationship, but a, a sturdy one ever since. Um, after that stint in Berlin, Edward went on to become editor of, uh, at University of California Press, and really, I think, was instrumental in building up their, their media series. Also, film, actually, the film part was robust and terrific. Those were the golden years at, uh, at University of California. Um, and he's been, uh, since that time, I guess you've left the press world and entered the academic world and has taught at a bunch of places, Columbia and Michigan, and uh, where he is now, University of California at Irvine, uh, where he's a professor of media studies, visual studies, and German. And that sort of expanded title speaks to the three domains that, um, that he works in. So uh, a long-term both fan and scholar of architecture, but also film, his, his book on film noir, um, Film Noir in the Spaces of Modernity is a terrific book. I think the best book on noir deals with, in, in a certain way, it will echo through the, uh, the presentation uh, this afternoon. Harvard published it a couple years ago, and it was uh, a finalist for the Kovacs Award, which is the award in the field. Um, honorable mention, actually, not finalist, honorable mention for the Catherine Singer Kovacs Prize. Um, He's also one of the editors with uh, Anton Kays and Martin Jay of the Weimar Republic Sourcebook, which is a compendium, a fantastic compendium of Weimar culture. Uh, not the usual, usual bits, but the sort of esoteric and fantastic bits that bring that, that cultural moment to life. And the, the topography of the book is really superb. I mean, the, the, the rubrics, the ways in which this material is parsed out is, is really stunning. Um, Winner of many fellowships, Fulbright, Getty, uh, the Graham Foundation, Canadian Center for Architecture, um, and the one you're about to go off on, what did you tell me, 17 months? <laughs> 17 months, uh, which is the, Cal the University of California President's Fellow in the Humanities Award, as well as a, uh, a, you'll, you'll have a stint at the American Academy in Berlin coming right up. And um, maybe you can tell us about your forthcoming two books, but... I turn this over, Edward, to you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. I've followed the uh, development of the program for a long time, and it's really wonderful to uh, uh, see how far it's come and uh, to see it continue to moving in so many interesting directions. This is a, an excerpt of a book I'm working on on post-1970 representations of Los Angeles in, in different documentary media. Some of it deals with films, some of it deals with interactive DVDs, some of it deals with websites, and uh, you'll, you'll get a sense of uh, some of the uh, directions of the project, I think, from the, uh, the lecture. Uh, can, can you hear me? Okay, uh, I'm, I'm in my, okay, can you hear me in the back? If I speak in this tone of voice, okay, fine. Uh, I'm going to talk for about 50 minutes and show you two clips from a, a film as part of that 50 minutes, uh, the film I'll be talking about, Pat O'Neill's The Decay of Fiction. 
It was not all that long ago when one could begin a lecture on Los Angeles with the truism that little scholarship existed on its built environment. With a few singular exceptions, the work of Austrian geographer Anton Wagner, British architectural historian Rainer Banham, American historian Robert Fogelson, the magazine Arts and Architecture edited by John Intenza, Los Angeles remained curiously, if not scandalously, underpublished up until the 1970s, a dark star that absorbed architectural and intellectual talent but rarely reflected back into larger conversations and debates about the future of the city. This situation, fortunately, has changed. And 30 years later, a steady stream of publications, dissertations, conferences, urgent political conversations, and even Academy Award-winning films have thrust Los Angeles into high profile among architects and the general public. Histories of the city traditionally have fit within a few easily recognizable genres. The boosterist defense, uh, Remy Nadeau, Jack Smith are the two people associated with that genre. The modernist appreciation of its unique infrastructure, Anton Wagner, Robert Fogelson, Rainer Banham, and the political indictment of its ruling elites, Mike Davis, David Reif, or the postmodern critique of its urban space, Frederick Jameson and Edward Soja. Yet this arc and the sense of a paradise discovered in the 19th century, lost in the 20th, and cautiously being reimagined in the 21st century, uh, as evidenced in the uh, recent book by Roger Gottlieb, published by uh, MIT Press on Los Angeles, has grown less extreme over the past few years. For as discussions of the city's future turn to questions of mass transit, affordable housing, and the place of Los Angeles among Mexico and the Pacific Rim nations, its problems and prospects increasingly resemble those of other world metropoles facing the pressures of the global economy. Yet recently, a new approach to the past of a city once thought to be unlike any other has taken shape. Its defining characteristic is an emphasis upon the image, especially the moving image, as the medium of historical understanding. Historians long have considered visual evidence, of course, and disciplines such as art and architectural history or film studies presuppose its investigation and critical analysis. The turn toward the visual I refer to here considers the moving image as the primary object, simultaneously the method and the medium of historical inquiry. While cultural historians such as Vanessa Schwartz, uh, whose recent book, uh, It's All French, on French film, I would highly recommend to everyone, uh, and Deborah Silverman have considered visual modernity, it is in Los Angeles that many of their colleagues actually have begun to make moving images as a way of practicing history. Unlike an earlier generation of scholars, one thinks here of William Stott and his classic study of documentary expression in 1930s America. This, this contemporary Los Angeles school, which I take to include scholars such as Philip Effington and Norman Klein, concerns itself less with the ultimate referent of the image, the how it really was discredited by postmodernist critiques of historicism, than with visual narrative itself. They employ digital media such as the internet and the DVD in lieu of the textual form of the book and substitute the non-hierarchical storytelling possibilities of hypertext and interactive media for traditional linear narrative. Over the past five years, this new tendency, spilling over into the older medium of film, has become evident and today comprises an entire range of texts, perhaps best described as blurred genres in the phrase of the late Clifford Geertz. 
For example, film historian Tom Anderson's Los Angeles Plays Itself of 2003, a 169-minute cinematic essay composed of excerpts from other films about Los Angeles, hovers between scholarship, nostalgia, and obsessive cinephilia, ranging from disaster films to low-budget movies to the work of forgotten directors such as Jacques Demay and local neorealist auteurs such as Kent McKenzie and Billy Woodbury, Anderson's compilation film, at once a remarkable contribution to film history by virtue of its analysis of many obscure movies, is also a sustained inquiry into Los Angeles iconography. Organized by topic rather than around a single narrative, the film comes across more as a database unfolding in time, a telephone directory of how, when, and where Los Angeles has been filmed than as a story or a narrowly framed scholarly investigation. As sprawling as the city it treats, Los Angeles plays itself as corpus and research program in one. Paradigmatic of this tendency as well is bleeding through layers of Los Angeles, 1920 to 1986, also from 2003, a DVD-ROM database narrative by historian and media theorist Norman Klein. Composed of hundreds of photographs, documents, and film clips, its sounds and images compose a rich tapestry of Los Angeles metropolitan culture irreducible to a single narrative. Further complicating this kaleidoscopic approach to the city's history, Klein organizes his media panorama around the life of a fictional character called Molly, whose biography he narrates and comments upon, at once underscoring the conventions of historical forms and inviting the viewer to construct potentially limitless visual and spatial juxtapositions, the project is paradoxically dependent upon the very chronological and biographical conventions that it seeks to subvert. By utilizing biography as a prism through which multiple strands of Los Angeles history are refracted, Klein suggests the inextricability of space and subjectivity while also demonstrating how interactive digital media provide historians with a new discursive mode encompassing both linear and nonlinear argument. Or take the two online hypertext link essays by historian Phil Ethington, Los Angeles and the Problem of Urban Historical Knowledge and Urban Icons. In the former dense theoretical meditation on photography and temporality, Ethington argues, quote, mapping is not only a powerful metaphor for the historical knowledge project, but a concrete tool for affirming the presence of the historical in the condition of the present for mediating between the infinitely local and infinitely global, and for building knowledge communities, end of quote. In the latter, a graphical user interface organized in the form of a map, and I recommend this uh, website, Urban Icons, to all of you. It's, it's quite interesting. Uh, Ethington as assembles a montage of scholarly text on urban recognizability juxtaposed with sound effects and still and moving images. Common to both endeavors is the aspiration, quote, to meet Frederick Jameson's call for an as yet unimaginable new mode of historical representation, end of quote. One then Ethington finds adumbrated, if not already present, in the capabilities of digital media, which in turn appeal well suited to explore the vastness of space and time in Los Angeles. Any city, any place, can of course be represented using digital media, and the temptation to posit an underlying identity between Los Angeles and these technologies must be avoided. Los Angeles is not a database, a website, a set of hypertext links, any more than these media developed and employed for multiple purposes in distinct settings share intrinsic features with this or any other city. 
Bypassing any such essentialism, the question still remains why Los Angeles historians such as Ethington and Klein have become media makers. Clearly, the open-ended exploratory character of their work rejects earlier notions of documentary practice, such as John Grierson's, since it manifests little concern with compelling belief or affecting persuasion. Presenting many Los Angeles stories, some conflicting, others entirely fictional, these fragmented mosaic-like constructions generate as many, if not more, questions than answers. Closer to the mark as a description of these endeavors is perhaps Walter Benjamin's notion of historical redemption that he develops in the Arcades Project, where he writes, quote, what are phenomena to be rescued from? Not only and not in the main from the discredit and neglect into which they have fallen, but from the catastrophe represented very often by a certain strain in their dissemination. Their enshrinement is heritage. They are saved through the exhibition of the fissure within them. There is a tradition that is catastrophe, end of quote. Benjamin's ideas about realizing what he called the heightened graphicness, the German word is Anschaulichkeit, by carrying over what he called the montage principle into history are well known, perhaps even too well known. Many commentators nonetheless have discerned in his theory and practice the lineaments of contemporary digital culture. More relevant here is the suggestion that cultural objects may be racked by fissures and tensions, contradictory tendencies in their reception history, and re redeemed from the stultifying forces of cultural heritage by exposure and exhibition. Long suffering a similar fate, thanks to the timidity and good manners of local historians, the image corpus of Los Angeles, the hundreds of thousands of photographs, artworks, and films slumbering in Southern California archives have been, thanks to the efforts of Klein, Anderson, and Ethington, granted a vital and overdue second life. Cut loose from earlier celebratory and chauvinistic curatorial contexts, images of Los Angeles at last may acknowledge their contradictions and their incompleteness, their unsettling ambiguity, and confront 21st century viewers with the sense of absence that for these contemporary thinkers permeates many domains of the city's history. One film in particular, The Decay of Fiction, made in 2002 by Los Angeles experimental filmmaker Pat O'Neill, elegantly conveys the shift toward practicing history through the moving image that I have been describing, and in the process further blurs the boundaries between architectural investigation, urban documentation, and aesthetic play. Although not a professional historian, O'Neill, as I hope to suggest, offers in his film a compelling account of his city's architectural past. The decay of fiction links the Los Angeles avant-garde cinematic tradition associated with the techniques of single-frame animation and optical printing. Remember the optical printer before uh, digital animation? It seems like it was 500 years ago that people actually used it. But uh, I can remember when I first became interested in uh, avant-garde film that optical printing was the, uh, the, the, the cutting edge of experimental animation. Uh, it's, uh, this film is located uh, in a relationship to the uh, techniques of single-frame animation and optical printing and 1950s film noir. Yet it stands out by virtue of its architectural specificity. It's setting in a single building, the Ambassador Hotel. Designed by architect Myron Hunt and opened in 1921, the building remains, quote, a significant link in the chain that connects Spanish and Mediterranean revival styles to California modernism, end of quote, in the words of Los Angeles Times architecture critic Christopher Hawthorne. Hunt, 1868 to 1952, was a prolific California architect, 
who worked throughout the state, especially in the Pasadena area. Uh, there, his most famous buildings include the Huntington Library, the Rose Bowl Stadium, and the campus of Occidental College. Located between Wilshire Boulevard and 8th Street at the corner of Mariposa Avenue and Catalina Street, the Ambassador was built upon 23 acres that functioned as an active dairy farm until 1902. At the time of its construction in 1919, its location far west at the periphery of the city's downtown led many to consider it adrift in the middle of nowhere. Aided by the construction of the automobile-oriented Miracle Mile shopping district on Wilshire Boulevard in the 1920s by developer A.W. Ross, the hotel, located just east of the terminus of the shopping district at La Brea Avenue, helped to develop Wilshire as one of the city's major arterial thoroughfares. What began as a dirt road surrounded by bean and barley fields later became the middle of the city and once again today occupies a peripheral position in the metropolis despite its central location. The hotel shares the stylistic eclecticism of Hunt's architecture, fusing Beaux-Arts axial symmetry, Art Deco accents and revival styles into an imposing version of the Grand Hotel typology. Together with the Biltmore Hotel in Olive Street, designed by Schulze and Viva of 1922, it is regarded, or I should say it was regarded, as the city's grand hotel of the 1920s. Yet even the ambassador's most stalwart advocates often describe it as one of Hunt's lesser buildings, and today discussions of its architectural value generally emphasize the coffee shop designed by African-American architect Paul R. Williams in the late 1940s. What distinguishes the hotel is perhaps less the quality of its architecture than its still palpable aura as a site of social, cultural, and political events intertwined with history on the local, state, and national levels. Its Coconut Grove nightclub, decorated by Rudolf Val Valentino with papier-mâché palm leaves left over from his 1921 film The Sheik, long functioned as the city's hottest night spot, the haunt of Joan Crawford, Douglas Fairbanks, and Carol Lombard, and the place where Bing Crosby, Merb, Merb Griffin, and even Barbara Streisand commenced their careers as vocalists. In the 1930s, the first Golden Oscar statuette was awarded when the Academy Awards were held at the Grove. Howard Hughes, John Barrymore, Jean Harlow, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Gloria Swanson all resided in the Ambassador. In 1952, Richard Nixon wrote his Checkers speech there. And after he was denied permission to visit Disneyland in 1959, Nikita Khrushchev nursed his wounded ego in the Ambassador. At the height of its popularity, the hotel possessed a miniature golf course, a bowling alley, riding stables, and a menagerie of camels and bears. Yet the most no no notorious chapter in its history commenced on June 5, 1968, when Robert Kennedy was assassinated in its kitchen pantry by Saran Saran, shortly after he delivered his victory speech upon winning the California primary for the presidency. Closed to the public on January 3, 1989, its gated exterior and decaying structures formed arguably the most conspicuous space of urban liminality, a terrain vague in the phrase of Ignacy Sola de Morales, uh, the late Spanish architectural theorist in downtown Los Angeles. Having shed its luster as the city's most elegant lodging, by the 1970s, the hotel commenced what amounted to a veritable second life as a film set. Its peeling exterior and empty uh, rooms were hired out by film productions in search of fading grandeur or simply large spaces that could be altered at will. Although as early as 1933 the Coconut Grove was used as a film location, 
Shooting in the hotel seems to have accelerated with The Graduate, Mike Nichols, 1967, and after the pall cast by the Kennedy assassination, its use for this purpose steadily increased. Since then, more than 1,000 film and television productions were shot in The Ambassador, benefiting from its enormity 500 rooms and a price lower than could be obtained by filming on local sound stages in the LA region. Some of the better known titles filmed there include Hoffa, Danny DeVito, 1922, Rocky, John Avelson, 1976, Devil in a Blue Dress, Carl Franklin, 1995, Minority Report, Steven Spielberg, 2002, and being John Malkovich, Spike Jones, 1999. Into this motley list of films, one can add uh, Pat O'Neill's The Decay of Fiction, whose creator occupies a paradoxical space with respect to the Hollywood film industry. For alongside his independent cinema, situated somewhere at the intersection of West Coast psychedelia and surrealist short film, he also has produced special effects for commercials and big-budget extravaganzas. Long-renowned as a master of the optical printer, the technological forebear of today's digital animation technology, O'Neill has produced special effects for such films as Star Wars V, Star Wars VI, and Superman IV. If the cultural distance between his concerns as an artist and orchestrating the lightning bolts that emanate from Darth Vader's fingertips in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi seems an unbridgeable chasm, film historian David James argues that this dual life, working in the industry and working in avant-garde experimental film, has been typical for many figures among the Los Angeles experimental film crowd. The expense of working in the cinema medium, the decay of fiction cost $250,000 to make, an enormous sum for any experimental film, and the 10 years that O'Neill spent on post-production after completing the film's principal photography underscore what is in effect a symbiotic relationship forged by economic necessity. As critic Paul Arthur notes, quote, Paradoxically, the blockbuster paradigm that replaced Hollywood's classical system was fueled by otherworldly stories trafficking in the very sort of special effects over which O'Neill has demonstrated mastery, end of quote. Suffused by nostalgia for the Hollywood studio system, the architecture of the Ambassador Hotel, film noir, pre-World War II cultural styles, gangster patois, and a densely compact Los Angeles with no freeways anywhere in sight, the decay of fiction is nonetheless firmly rooted in the 21st century digital culture that remains the condition of its possibility. That the complex layering of sounds and image and synthesis of staged action and scenes filmed in the hotel could not have been realized without contemporary digital hardware and software is obvious. At minimum, the decay of fiction stands as a monument to the distance that has been traversed since the optical printer and the painstaking physical layering of film that it employed. Such physicality becomes literally immaterial, if not altogether moot, in the age of computer animation, even as digital theorist Lev Manovich suggests, it links contemporary moving image production to the earliest history of the cinema, the manual construction of images and loop actions. If, as I am suggesting, the decay of fiction can be fruitfully related to digital narrative experimentations of Ethington and O'Neill, such a connection hinges as much upon the film's narrative form as its mode of production. Its loosely structured chain of events seems more catalyzed by the architecture of the hotel than a single story logic. Here one might discern the influence of the database through what Manovich calls the hard narrative of cinema uh, and the fact that it's rendered soft here uh, and the presence of a menu of variables which determines the action rather than a causal chain. 
Shifting from one space of the hotel to another, the film mimics the element of selection in a database, yet explores temporality and loss in a manner that underscores its reliance upon cinematic form. So what I'd like to do now is watch a clip of about 10 minutes from the movie.
sure, how's it going? See you later. On his new shows over the top, filled with the end of the month. That here, Jack? You get last week's stuff? No, actually, that's what I'm here about. Yeah, what do you mean? Well, Max asked me as a favor to come down here and have a chat with you. Can go to your office? Sure, follow me. Yeah. 
Signaled by its very title, The Decay of Fiction is a meditation on decay in its architectural, cinematic, and cultural forms. That the first sound we hear is water dripping in what is soon revealed to be a scarred and peeling room in the ambassador underscores the inextricability of buildings from the ravages of time and weathering. Architecture, the film suggests, is always already decaying, permanently exposed to the elements. We place a cultural premium on its alleged permanence, a quality that mercilessly recedes without preventive maintenance and focused attention, as any home dweller can ruefully attest. The water-stained hotel room telegraphically conveys a state in which human attention has been withdrawn, dwelling has ceased, and architecture slides back toward nature. As Georg Simmel observes of the rune, quote, it is an object infused with our nostalgia, for now decay appears as nature's revenge for spirits having violated it by making a form in its own image, end of quote. Decay is also a constant nemesis of the physical film strip, whose transformation uh, of old celluloid into gum and dust can only be partially stemmed by the efforts of preservationists. O'Neill's title is but several letters away from the decay of film, a process whose multiple registers it plays upon. For if cinema has decayed, the full implications of such a claim need to be recognized not simply in the physical deterioration of film prints, but also, and perhaps more profoundly, in the altered status and mode of circulation of cinema in contemporary culture. Try to locate celluloid copies of the dozen film noir titles whose images and dialogue O'Neill has appropriated for his own film, and you soon will encounter the sense in which film indeed has decomposed, or at minimum become a medium unlike what it was 50 or 100 years ago. Apart from a few copies in studio vaults, film archives, and venerable left-bank Parisian movie houses, films such as Pursued, Ralph Walsh, 1947, The Big Combo, Joseph H. Lewis, 1955, Out of the Past, Jacques Turner, 1949, and His Kind of Woman, Joseph Farrow, 1951, exist largely as videotapes or DVDs, viewed on the living room media center, the laptop DVD drive, or in the college and university classroom. For most films produced during the era of classical cinema, to remain on celluloid is to be consigned to oblivion, to decay in living cultural memory. What the terrain vague is to urban space, the celluloid film strip is to contemporary culture, a crumbling memory palace. When one considers how only 30 years ago thousands of prints were routinely struck for each commercially released film, a practice that contemporary distributors fervently wish to replace by digital or satellite transmission, the situation today is remarkable. To be sure, celluloid may never entirely disappear, if for no other reason than the fantastic expense of refitting all the world's movie theaters for digital projection. But its current identity is but one vector of the film experienced, deprivileged and uncoupled from the collective mode of reception that long dominated its circulation, explains something of the nostalgia conveyed by O'Neill's movie. Its aura of loss, the sense of a present that resists integration within the deepest layers of memory and experience, the realm that Benjamin famously characterized as Erlebnis, is signaled by the film's frequent recourse to time-lapse cinematography. 
to watch palm tree leaves flutter rapidly, shadows creep across the hotel grounds, and sunlight give way to the noirish LA night, is to be reminded of the ceaseless march of time. Such an aperçu does not itself hinge upon digital technology, of course, for time-lapse filming was already employed by filmmakers in the silent era. Yet its repetition through the decay of fiction functions as a leitmotif, if not a textual compulsion, signaled by the rapid movement of pages of an inscrutable book. Put simply, the film can be read to suggest that contemporary uh, culture, uh, the contemporary cultural condition, one might say, is to have too much to remember, too many visual impressions, too many cultural memories sped up and flung into the world at ever faster rates may leave one feeling like a floppy disk uh, incapable of accepting new data, if not like computer hardware a year or two old and thus already spurned by one's children or students or roommates. Revealingly, all of the exterior sequences in the film, especially the many long shots of the Los Angeles skyline, are presented in this time-lapse mode. Inside the hotel, scenes are filmed in both normal and accelerated time. Implied here is a distinction between a socially organized time of the contemporary <coughs> metropolis and the temporality of memory and experience. If the former is shown as relentless and industrially regulated, airplanes flit across the sky and traffic moves through the streets as though purely mechanical processes, normal time, human time, is shown to be constantly encroached upon by the temporality of the city. In the rooms, curtains function liminally, akin to Zimmel's famed stimuli shield, fluttering rapidly so as to absorb the shocks of the city and allow inhabitants to think and remember. Paradoxically, the effect of multiple images of a condensed and fleeting temporality in the film is to endow the Ambassador Hotel with an indelibility and permanence that Benjamin associates with his more robust concept of experience, uh, Erfahrung in German. If it has become impossible to assimilate the contents of memory, it has become just as impossible, the film suggests, to forget them. Tracking forward through the corridors of the building, endlessly retracing its labyrinthine spaces, O'Neill's film may be inserted, as David James suggests, within the lineage of the grand hotel film genre composed by those two palaces of modern cinematic memory, last year at Marienbad, Alan Rene, 1961, and The Shining, Stanley Kubrick, 1980. Although their architectural interiors may prove suffocating, even deadly, the geometrically manicured formal guarding or the raging blizzard beyond the walls of the Colorado Hotel in those films are hardly more inviting. Through the presentation of an alternative temporality, the decay of fiction recalls the suggestion of Solar Morales that architecture attuned uh, to the Turan Vague, quote, engages the flows, the energies, the rhythms established by the passing of time and the loss of limits, end of quotes. Like these two films, O'Neill's work links the hotel interior with madness, and its final half is dominated by animated images and characters anchored in the oniric realm rather than in film noir or in the physical space of the hotel. O'Neill himself has described the film, quote, as an intersection of fact and hallucination, end of quote, and it's not inconsiderable achievement maybe to suggest the practical inseparability of two domains usually thought antithetical. As Simmel observes, quote, in the case of the rune, with its extreme intensification and fulfillment of the present form of the past, such profound and comprehensive energies of the soul are brought into play that there is no longer any sharp division between perception and thought, end of quote. 
Thus, to know or to remember the Ambassador Hotel in any robust sense is not simply to survey its grounds and interiors, but also to fantasize about them, to be swept into private erotic reveries or the nocturnal world of dreams. Just as Rem Koolhaas demonstrates how fantasies pervade the New York architecture of Coney Island or Rockefeller Center, O'Neill presents us with a delirious Ambassador Hotel whose extravagance outstrips mere architectural function and engages with the irrational, ludic desires of Los Angeles, no less than its New York cousin, the Waldorf Astoria. Much of the film presents a quite different perspective on the ambassador, however, one that is resolutely public and collective. Uh, scenes in the coffee shop that we just saw uh, and the coconut grove that we also saw and by the swimming pool uh, depict people inhabiting the hotel. And indeed, much of the film seems dedicated to reconstructing its vanished occupants. That they speak lines of dialogue from films noir and dress like movie characters draws attention to the challenge of reconstructing the subjectivity of those who have occupied the architecture of the past. O'Neill's translucent ghosts become allegorical placeholders for the subjects that architectural historians posit implied but never entirely present in their objects of study, the ghosts that haunt their houses. In the pre-digital age, film viewing was, of course, pursued as a member of a public, and the decay of fiction seeks to redeem what Cornell West calls, quote, the political value of nostalgia, end of quote, localized in an older mode of media spectatorship and in the collective gatherings in the hotel. Seated in a ring in the coconut grove, or accompanied by the famous radio broadcast of The Shadow, spectatorship in the film usually occurs in groups. Belonging to an audience has clear political valences. And uh, let's look at uh, the second clip. Uh, it was, it's on the other video. Great, thank you.
Beginning with a jazz band rehearsing in its center, sound montage introduces Robert Kennedy delivering his victory speech after winning the California primary in his 1968 presidential campaign. The crowd chants, we want Bobby. A lone janitor sweeps a broom across the floor until moments later gunshots ring out and pandemonium ensues. The victim is shown being removed by medics on a stretcher as a horrified crowd forms in the kitchen, the destination of the narrative implied earlier when the camera lingers on a wall with an arrow pointing in its direction. In an intriguing reversal of the techniques of classical cinema, the decay of fiction inverts the truth value commonly associated uh, with the image and consistently equates that which we hear rather than that which we see with historical truth. Introducing a palpable element of trauma, the ballroom scene is the sole eruption of political history in the film, significantly only moments that can be precisely dated. Here, popular memory wells up most powerfully in The Ambassador, effectively proposing the hotel not merely as an architectural ruin, but as a locus of wrecked political hopes and aspirations. Although the crowd and their bodies are visually absent, their presence is beyond doubt. Nostalgia understood in its twin senses as both a longing and a wound opened by re-encountering the past suffuses this absent public. Drawing dialogue from a dozen film noir titles that span the 1940s and 1950s, the film appropriates these sequences without any readily discernible historical principle. The ballroom scene also represents the only moment that is verifiably post-noir. Its anchoring in the year 1968 acts as a bridge between the earlier noir quotations and the footage of the hotel uh, in its present dilapidated state. The long scene in the pantry area where the assassination took place acts as a formal and thematic counterpart to the brightly lit and clearly legible preceding events. Here a group of chefs and kitchen employees, multiplied and distended, frantically rush about performing their tasks. If the viewer seeks some guidance or commentary about the relation between this space and the murder that transpired there, he or she receives none. Hallucination trumps fact as the action speeds up and the dark recesses of the pantry return the film to the nightmarish domain of noir. A television set in the kitchen displays a film scene with Robert Mitchum, later shown in close-up. But what, you may be wondering, about the future of the Ambassador Hotel? Since closing its doors in 1989, its fate has been marked by as many twists and intrigues as a film noir narrative and has been nearly as bloody. In 1989, the hotel was purchased by Wilshire Center Partners, a consortium of developers for $64 million, most of which went to settle accrued debt. That same year, the Los Angeles Unified School District, the LAUSD, attempted to acquire the Ambassador property as a site for school construction, claiming rights of eminent domain. A year later, Donald Trump purchased a minority stake in the property and announced plans to build a 125-story office tower there. The LAUSD condemned 17 acres of the property in 1990 and paid out $48 million as compensation. Litigation between Trump and the school district then ensued. Later, the LAUSD withdrew its bid and commenced construction of the Belmont Learning Center complex in downtown Los Angeles. This school was eventually constructed at a cost of $280 million and later condemned after it was discovered to rest on a toxic waste site. Trump sold off his interest in the ambassador in 1998, which was then acquired by Wilshire Center Marketplace, another development group led by the S.D. Malkin Company. These 
these developers proved unable to raise the capital necessary to develop the property or to locate partners able to cost share. In August 2000, they sought bankruptcy protection so as to prevent foreclosure by the LAUSD, which sought to regain its deposit plus interest. After 11 years of legal challenges and $100 million in legal fees, the school district eventually purchased the property for $76.5 million in 2001. From the earliest announcement of the acquisition of the ambassador by the LAUSD, preservationists, led by the Los Angeles Conservancy, sought to prevent its destruction. No one doubted the desperate shortage of schools in the surrounding neighborhood, where students have regularly been bused to outlying uh, schools more than an hour away. Half of the 25,000 high school seats required by the district are located in the surrounding downtown area, but the Conservancy had hoped that a strategy of adaptive reuse would prove feasible and allow the hotel to be converted into a school. A series of public hearings and discussions were held in 2002 and 2003 and generated a vociferous public debate. Indeed, the verbal and written comments recorded at the July 12, 2003 hearing fill a thousand pages of the public record, 36 pages of which alone comprise the table of contents listing those who offered comment, and thereby give the lie to the myth of an apathetic Los Angeles citizenry. After deciding to construct an educational complex of three schools ranging from kindergarten through high school on the ambassador site, the LAUSD identified five alternative strategies, maximum reuse, preservation of the main hotel building, uh, two, preserving only the north tower of the hotel and demolish demolishing the rest of the building, three, preserving the Coconut Grove nightclub and reconstructing the embassy ballroom, four, full demolition and all new construction, Five, preserving the main hotel building while reserving approximately three acres of Wilshire Boulevard frontage for a park. The Conservancy backed options one and five and took particular umbrage at proposals for re recreating the embassy ballroom in a new school building and constructing a false facade of the old hotel visible from Wilshire Boulevard. In 2004, the school board voted by a four to three margin to raise the ambassador and build a school complex to serve 4,200 students. The Conservancy filed litigation to block the plan of the LAUSD, but lost its case in court. Uh, in August of 2007, it reached a settlement with the school district, according to whose terms the Conservancy would withdraw its opposition to raising the ambassador in exchange for $4.9 million in contributions that the school district would make to a special f uh, that the school district would make to a special fund earmarked for conserving historic school buildings in Los Angeles. This opened the way for construction to commence on the three schools designed by Pasadena-based Gonzalez Goodell Architects scheduled to open in 2009. According to their design scheme, the Williams Coffee Shop uh, will become the Teacher's Lounge, the Coconut Grove, the School Auditorium, and the, the ceiling of the Embassy Building will be rehung in its new library. And the false facade of the old hotel will in fact be constructed on Wilshire Boulevard, a veritable artificial ruin. Early in 2006, the ambassador was raised, and today its former construction grounds comprise a construction site. And in fact, what happened is that the, uh, the ballroom and the coffee shop uh, were eventually declared uh, structurally unstable. And uh, as far as I know, either they will be uh, demolished uh, in the near future or already have been. I haven't driven by the site in a while, but uh, they're being destroyed as well. Throughout this controversy, diverse interest groups expressed their perspectives, adding yet more layers to the conversation. Sirhan Sirhan filed a petition 
claiming that raising the ambassador would destroy vital evidence for his exoneration. Proponents of a memorial for Robert Kennedy noted that if Atlanta and Houston could construct memorials for Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy at the site of their assassinations, why should Los Angeles not follow suit? Representatives of the Kennedy family rejected this suggestion and claimed the most fitting tribute to RFK would simply be the construction of new schools. A staff for the Mexican-American Legal Fund opposed the use of any school board funds for preservation, including the settlement with the Conservancy. Increasingly, its efforts were seen by many in the community as politically suspect delays in the process of creating more classroom space, led as the Los Angeles Times architecture critic Hawthorne put it, quote, by wealthy dilettantes who don't live in the immediate area, end of quote. Members of the local architectural community argued that preservation of the hotel could well enhance the educational experience of students, a claim that met with mixed support among local citizens. The lessons to be drawn from this case are scarcely obvious, although the problems it raises are likely to become more acute as Los Angeles grows denser and more populated. What could or should the Conservancy have done differently to make a better case to the community for preserving the hotel? How, in an age of cultural pluralism, is it possible to argue for the preservation of buildings, if not of empty spaces, whose ultimate value may be as repositories of cultural memory rather than architectural masterworks? Are we living through a decay of the fiction of the public realm, an evisceration of the planning imagination by piecemeal solutions in an age of waning political consensus? Has empty space, the terrain vague, become a luxury that contemporary metropolis uh, such as Los Angeles, can no longer afford, and if so, at what cost? Why does the decay of fiction appear on the verge of the destruction of the ambassador, just as earlier films noir gravitated to spaces such as Bunker Hill in Los Angeles and New York's Pennsylvania Station, whose days at the time also were numbered? And what is the ultimate relation between the exposure of the ambassador hotel and contemporary films and its eventual demise? Would anything have changed if it had been less familiar, less a fixture of contemporary filmmaking? Did cinematic representation cheapen the ambassador and lead to an underestimation of everything about architecture more generally that can't be captured on film? Was the hotel taken for granted and underappreciated precisely because it had become so cinematically ubiquitous? Might, one might well conclude that by being instantly recognizable, an urban media icon, it died of overexposure. Listening to the final shots of the decay of fiction, breaking glass in the labor of a demolition crew, is to contemplate what has become, unfortunately, the most typical of Los Angeles stories. If the extensive filming of the hotel ultimately did not prevent its destruction, other notable buildings and neighborhoods extensively represented in 1940s and 1950s film noir have scarcely fared any better. Quote, anything about which one knows that one soon will not have it around becomes an image, end of quote. Benjamin writes in a statement that neatly encapsulates the cycle of representation followed by destruction evident in much 20th century cinema treating the built environment. This tradition, to which filmmakers as distinct as Louis Friad, Joseph Cornell, and Joseph Strick may be related, together, of course, with the legacy of film noir, I call nostalgic modernism. Its effect upon the general cause of historic preservation and local initiatives to save specific buildings appears, as far as I've been able to determine, minimal and is likely, in fact, non-existent. Occupying the cusp between the cinema of nostalgic urban modernism and the still emerging practice of digital urban history, the decay of, hit, his, the decay of fiction suggests that it may well be time to replace the culture of nostalgia with a different media practice, one that is proactive rather than reactive 
playful rather than respective, and fully engage with the creative and technological possibilities of new media. Whether a vibrant digital, digital culture of urban websites and interactive media treating architecture will effectively bolster the efforts of thoughtful city planners and preservationists uh, more effectively did, than did in an earlier film culture remains to be seen. It probably cannot do any worse and may in fact do far better. Architects today possess considerable expertise, of course, in the use of digital technology to simulate their own unbuilt work. The challenge, as I see it, is to direct this knowledge toward the non-instrumental study of the urban past, to generate digital research about architectural and urban history whose lessons do not immediately lead to contemporary design projects, but instead foster contemplation and imagination. Any skillful historian knows that juxtaposition and comparison do not themselves establish knowledge. My hope, perhaps naive, is that the ease with which digital technology facilitates superficial treatments will also encourage some to pursue more thoughtful avenues which synthesize traditional historical research techniques with the genuinely exciting possibilities offered by new media. Thank you. Got to be in the microphone. <laughs> um, I'm curious about this is kind of a softly formed thought, but hopefully one you can respond to. Um, I'm curious about how fiction uh, functions as both a method of historicizing and fiction equals story equals narrative mm -hmm. equals history and also fiction as in a facade or or an untruth the opposite of nonfiction, and how the tension between those two concepts of what fiction is are at work in in the concept of nostalgia as laid out mm -hmm. here and also maybe if the more narrativizing aspect of fiction is tied at all to a more generative process um, rather than a decaying process? It's mm, a, a good question. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure the opposition between uh, f fiction and some type of historical truth is that rigidly pursued in, in this film. I, mean, I, I think it's fundamentally uh, a, a, about storytelling, and, and there, there are different scenes with different stories. And to, to me, the, the main axis is, is, the, is the one between sound and image ra rather than truth and falsity or, 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 or truth and fiction. But I, I think, and I hope you got a sense of this from the clips I showed, that there's a kind of generalized nostalgia uh, throughout the, the, the film. There's a kind of mourning to it, uh, the sense that all of this is past, all of this is gone. These, these movies are gone. This architecture is gone, this moment in the history of Los Angeles is gone. There's a sense of, of absence that permeates this film. Although maybe just to follow, it strikes, and I haven't seen the film, just what you've shown, it strikes me that there's a kind of axis in the material that's used between, on one hand, sort of history, the objects, mm -hmm. the spaces, mm -hmm. and uh, memory, mm -hmm. uh, the, the inscription of those things mm -hmm. we associate with it, the, mm -hmm. uh, the big combo or whatever. Um, sort of perception, what we can tangibly see, and thinking, what we sort of can mentally construct. 
with a good dose of uh, nostalgia and fantasy shaken over it. And that's a really rich space, and I, I'd love to... Is the film accessible? I mean... I, I can arrange for you to get a copy. I would, uh, I would love to see it. Yeah, okay, because it really strikes me as a very productive um, axis that goes to, to, to what I think you were saying. I mean, that's a... Um, and it's such a hot topic these days, right? This sort of space between history and memory. And this, this seemed to really nail it on the head. And it also raises the question uh, about the, the layering of film history in, in, in larger history. When you have a place like this that's so connected with film history because so many movies have, uh, have been made there. Uh, there's a sense in which you start to recognize it from films you've seen. And if you go back and watch The Graduate, for example, you, you'll recognize it there. It also struck me that sometimes the characters seemed like native to mm -hmm. uh, older film traditions, and I'm not sure if, if at times they were excerpted from films, and sometimes they seemed like reenactments and costume, and, sometimes, and there was this tension between um, what was a memory of a, of a reconstruction of an idea of a time and a place, and what was an artifact that... Uh, that I thought was, was really interesting as the, well. The, this, the distinction, I think, is blurred. All the dialogue, uh, the, the film is really a, a palimpsest. It's a series of layers. All the dialogue comes from these old movies. There's a, a list of credits at the end of the film where all the dialogue comes from. So everything you hear, with the exception of the, uh, of the ballroom scene where Kennedy is shot, uh, all, all of the other dialogue comes from movies. But all of that dialogue is, is, is restaged by contemporary actors uh, uh, wearing uh, contemporary versions of old clothing or maybe actual old clothing. And it, it, was, it, was, it was filmed in the Ambassador and layered over the, uh, the, the filming of the, uh, the physical space of the hotel. So you, you have several different layers. So is the visual cliché an important part of this whole concept of nostalgia? What do you mean by the visual cliché? I just mean um, the, well, I'm, I've been looking at your urban icon atlas <laughs> a little bit at the same time, and you, it's discussed in the introduction there, the mm -hmm. whole concept of the visual cliché. And I'm just curious about that as an activator of memory, and where, where then do you draw the line between memory and nostalgia? And what is the role? I just think the, the recognizable characters, the recognizable place, the layering that you're talking about, all of that adds up to a sort of visual cliche, but it also creates, you know, cliche, mm -hmm. the whole mm -hmm. origin of the term and so forth. It's, it's a place and a pattern of recognition. Mm -hmm. I mean, once again, I'm not sure you can draw a hard and fast distinction. My inclination would be to say that cliche has a certain generality about it. Uh, it, it can be generalized from case to case. You could find many of these costumes and this dialogue in, in many films from the 40s and 50s that aren't necessarily set in Los Angeles but have more to do with the general film noir genre. Uh, and what, what I think is interesting about nostalgia is the fact that it may be useful for political or... There, there, there are two ways, I think, to use nostalgia. The first is simply as a, as a way to reflect on the passage of time and to say, gee, wasn't the world different at this earlier moment? And the second way that I think is more interesting is to use it politically and culturally and critically as, as, as a lever to think about the differences in the world between now and an earlier moment and to try to think about nostalgia politically. 
And uh, the way I think that happens in this film, as I try to suggest, is uh, the fact that there are so many scenes of, of, of people in groups. And uh, what, what's interesting in this film as well is uh, its representation of race relations, because even though you see uh, uh, an African-American woman uh, as, as a maid making up the room, and even though you see uh, African-American waitresses in the coffee shop, th there's a sense that this hotel is a bit like a big ocean liner. It's a big, like a big, a big boat, and everybody is contributing to moving the boat forward. Uh, everyone has a place in, in, in this large uh, mission, and everyone has a role and everyone in some sense is equal because they're contributing to the, uh, the, the uh, functioning of the hotel. So th th there's a sense of solidarity that, that the groups uh, throughout the film uh, suggest and that also th the different people who make the hotel work uh, suggest as well. And, and this is one of the ways I, I think the nostalgia might be leveraged politically by, by suggesting that uh, thinking about this earlier moment in time, we become aware of a, of a, of a collectivity, uh, of a group in American society uh, that was involved in, in running this hotel you know, up until the end of the 1960s and a sense of people being on equal footing. This idea is one that's developed, but you know, rather unsuccessfully in what I think of as a rather uninteresting film, Bobby, that was made about the Kennedy assassination and is disappointing, and I don't think nearly as interesting as this. But I mean, it's clearly a film that attempts to work through some of the same material. Yes, uh, I, I'm very curious about uh, the way the sound was designed for this movie and the music, the process of the scoring, and maybe how was re the relation of the acoustics of the hotel to the production of the soundtrack. Because uh, I really like the way the, the, the sound was being related to the image effects. I, I'm wondering if you did like some of the same digital processing techniques for the images. Did you apply the same techniques to the sound uh, looping? I don't know. I, I just... I, I really like it, so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about I don't know that. the answer to that question. I've been pestering Pat O'Neill to meet with me and, and a a answer my questions, and I hope one of these days he will. And uh, that's a question I'll ask him, so when I eventually uh, publish this, uh, this article, uh, you'll be able to find out the answer to it. But I, I really don't know. Some of the sound obviously is original from, from the movies, but you know, some of it, I think, was uh, obviously mixed and created especially for this film. I mean, I'm, so, I'm sorry I can't tell you more. Um, going back to the, the question a moment ago, um, before the sound, you talked about the, this, the idea that this was a, a project that everyone would be involved in, or that, that stepped across race and mm -hmm. uh, maybe even class. And I was wondering if you were planning on connecting that. Um, that strikes me as a nostalgia that might not that I don't think is shared by the people who live in the neighborhood that the hotel um, was in. Um, I used to live around there, and there's uh, the idea that this that this period was something that everyone had a, a, a place or part in. Um, I don't think that was something common, like commonly shared. I was wondering if that if that was of um, relevance with the debate about about the hotel turning into a school and perhaps this idea of decay from one perspective being generative of, of a, a different fiction about the city and what it means. Mm. Um, 
I think that's a, that's a great question. You have to ask who's decay and, and who, who, who's generation. And you know, one person's decay might be someone else's generation. I mean, I, I've read interviews with people who worked in the Ambassador Hotel, and some of them clearly felt that they were part of some, some, some project. And I can well imagine that people who lived in the surrounding neighborhood didn't and probably found it elitist and probably thought it was not a place where they would be welcome. And, um, you know, I, I think you're raising a good point, and I, I would not want to generalize too much. But I mean, what, 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 what's interesting to me today is that if you look at this type of uh, luxury building, which is what it in fact was, uh, it still seems to me somewhat uh, more inclusive uh, of people than uh, you know, many luxury buildings are today. I mean, if you go to a luxury hotel in downtown Boston or New York and Los Angeles, uh, there's probably even a smaller group of people uh, who have, have access to it. And there's, there's connections to, I mean, the kinds of inclusivity that Hollywood mm -hmm. had. And the, um, I, I guess what struck me as, um, as interesting about, I mean, this move from decay to, to, to from, that this nostalgia, that this was not simply a, um, the idea that this was something uh, that was, that could be inclusive or broad or important in a symbolic way, and the death of Kennedy there, um, that may have, that had reper certainly had repercussions across, um, across uh, uh, societal divisions, that that's not an idea that's present strikes me, or an idea that's necessarily commonly shared as perhaps evidenced in the debate about the school. That, that just struck me as something very important, a different kind of loss than just that this building is no longer here, mm -hmm. but even that the myths around, that the myths or ideas surrounding it might also be missing. And that, that, that strikes me as just maybe a little different. I don't know if that's interesting to your project, but. Uh, that's a good point. I mean, to me, the most palpable loss is the general loss of cinema. Because, of course, we know when we, we think about Hollywood uh, in the 30s and especially in the 40s during the Second World War, the, 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 the myth, or, or, or maybe not a myth, but the, the argument that you constantly come across was that this was the moment when box office was, was the greatest in the history of Hollywood cinema, and, and everyone went to the movies a, a couple of times a week, and, and this was really the, the cultural glue that, that, that kept the society together and made it cohesive, and uh, there really was a a kind of collective voice, and it was Hollywood at that moment in time. And, and clearly, you know, after television, you know, comes in at the end of the 1940s, uh, it's much harder to make that type of argument. And uh, you know, by the 60s, uh, it, it's no longer tenable at all. I have one quick question: um, Do you see uh, O'Neill's film as participating in an attempt at perpetuating cinema? or as a meta layer about cinema? I think it's both. I, mean, I, I think that's, for me, where its interest lies. I mean, clearly, uh, this is someone who loves film, uh, but whose earlier films are very different from this. I don't know whether you've seen them or not, but, but, but they're, they're much more abstract. Uh, they have even less narrative than this film. I mean, this film, you know, when it came out, was considered to be uh, a, a tremendous shift for him because, I mean, e even though uh, the narrative seems very loose, uh, it's much more narrative than his other films, which, you know, for the most part, don't even have characters or, or, or people who speak and are, are about uh, the abstract flow of images. So I, 
think it's both a, a kind of love letter to, as I've suggested, to a, a dying medium, uh, and also uh, a reenactment of that medium, and also a, re a reflection on that medium. I, I think, like the most successful artworks, it manages to be, uh, you know, both reflection and contribution uh, to the genre at once. Um, I had two questions um, about points that you made to contextualize the film. Uh, at the beginning of your talk, you talked about um, the suitability of new media and interactive websites um, to depict cities. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in whether you thought there was um, a connection. We talk a lot about the digital divide and whether there was a similar divide in representation in terms of areas and buildings and architecture and cities that do get filmed and those that don't get filmed and how that might play into sort of this hotel ambassador sort of its its real history playing into the fact that it became filmable and then to sort of connect that to um, something you said at the end of your talk about death by over-representation over-exposure and um, there's there's this whole new trend in urban studies the notion of the creative city <laughs> a city that becomes vibrant and is considered urban and vital and you know exciting because it is um, because it both inspires creativity and is documented in creative <laughs> ways um, and is the hub of this sort of bohemian film art, new media sort of it's stuff. Talking about the Elizabeth Currid book about the, New York? The, and... I'm, I'm familiar with the whole Richard Florida thing, right, which right. is a much more sort of political economy right. argument about, you know, you bring the artist there and they'll do stuff about it. And I'm just wondering how something like this plays into that. I mean, in terms of what you talked about with the school debate, and you said it's death power of exposure, but his argument would be that a film like this and sort of bringing back the history would actually make it a attractive and it would work well within the world of planners mm -hmm. and the world, you know, connecting the two worlds of the urban planners and the school boards and um, the artists and the filmmakers. Those are both really good questions. You know, to, to answer the, the, the first one, I mean, yes, I, I do think there is a digital divide or a, a representational divide. And if you look at the cities that have been uh, explored uh, in the literature on film in the city, uh, they basically are New York, Los Angeles, uh, Paris, uh, Berlin, uh, perhaps London to a certain extent, and I, I think that the next step you know, needs to be to consider, you know, th there's not a good book on Tokyo in film, for example, there's not a good book on Mumbai in film, there's not a good book on Moscow in film, or Mexico City in film. And I think the next step uh, for people interested in the city and media would be to you know, work on those cities and, and, and to produce works of scholarship which think about the histories of, of their cinematic representations and their representations in um, more recent media as well. And, and it's a project I'm, I'm very supportive of and would really like to see people who, who know the local uh, histories and urban conditions work on. To answer your second question, I'm not sure this film has had any effect at all. I suspect it probably hasn't, or if it has, I don't know about it, on the urban planning process in LA. It certainly had no impact on the preservation of the Ambassador Hotel. Uh, it's a film that people like Michael Deere at USC, I'm sure, know, and urban planners know, but uh, it just has not been taken up at the level of, of policy uh, in Los Angeles, and it doesn't seem to have had any political effectivity. Uh, 
Unlike, for example, I mean, if you're interested in this, I would encourage you a little bit of self-promotion to come to the talk I'm giving at the GSD tomorrow about, about the High Line. An interesting example is the extraordinary website that the Friends of the High Line have developed, which I think of as probably the best architecture and urban uh, website that anyone has ever done because uh, uh, it contains hundreds of articles, uh, hundreds of images, uh, film clips, uh, all 720 entries to the design competition. So, uh, and, and, and the most recent addition to that is that uh, they uh, have come up with a new campaign to get people to be photographed in front of backdrops of the High Line and different members of the community uh, are photographed uh, in front of the uh, High Line, uh, the image of the old High Line, because of course when the High Line opens in the fall, it's not going to look anything like the Joel Sternfield photographs, but uh, it's, it's a very, very, very savvy use of digital media, the best I've encountered uh, on behalf of an urban uh, preservation and reuse project. So, you know, I, I think in some sense, I mean, for me, that's the cutting edge uh, of using these, uh, th these tools to think about how you can reshape uh, an urban space and uh, get different people uh, involved at different levels in the community. Okay, well, Shall we have some refreshments? Yeah, we're nearing the witching hour. Um, okay, again, uh, thanks very much, and uh, we can have refreshments outside in the hall. Thanks.